0: Good morning, church. We are uh, in the in stages, I guess, of a series on Daniel. We've got two more weeks of this series after today, but today, it's one of the most well-known stories in the book of Daniel. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And, uh, and so I wanted to share this story with you, but I wanted to remind us that this story, it may look different as we read it again than we learned it growing up. There's so many details that I'd forgotten when I looked at this again this week. And so I wanna read the entire chapter uh, this morning. And uh, just really want to ask that you kind of open your eyes again. In fact, if this is a new story to you, if you're new to faith, in some ways you may have a benefit over those of us who've heard this thousands of times, because sometimes we think we know the story and we forget the details that are there. So again, just kind of he- listen again as if this is for the first time to this story about Daniel and about these lions, which was really about a lot more than just that. Daniel 6, I'm going to read the entire chapter, so stick with me. Uh, it's, a, it's a powerful story it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satrapes to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satrapes were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satrapes by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrator's And the satrapes tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satrapes went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that, he, that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about their royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den. And the king answered, "The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians which cannot be repealed." Then they said to the king, "Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pray, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays 3 times a day." And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king Darius and said to him, Remember, Your Majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den, and when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, nor his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves, he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray as we open uh, God's Word uh, this morning. God, we, uh, we just ask that this morning we would have the belief that we have sung about before, God, that we need you, and that we trust that you are a God who is alive and is roaring like a lion, even in the midst of a world gone mad. And so, that, God, this morning I pray that you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that surprised me about this story about Daniel in the lion's den is that Daniel doesn't do all that much in this story. Now, he does a, a, a lot in the small acts that he does. He, he continues to pray even in the midst of the decree. The story doesn't let us in on anything that Daniel's thinking in this story. It doesn't really focus in on the story I remember the focus of being, which was in the lion's den, right? I remember that being the focus of the VBS story. But we don't really know what goes on except when he comes out and he thanks God and he proclaims his innocence, and he says, you know, the angels came in and they shut the mouths of these lions. The story is really less about Daniel than it is about some other characters in the story. It focuses in on King Darius, even more so probably on his cabinet or his administrators and and leaders, and and it's definitely about the God of the exiles uh, of Daniel's God. So first, let's talk about the king. The Bible does not give us a flattering picture of kings for the most part. And uh, it's easy for us to misunderstand why because we've lived for the last 1600 plus years in the West really on top of power as Christians in many ways in the kingdoms, right? But imagine what it would have been like in those days where the king is actually a foreign power. This was a revelation to me just a few years ago. It was a realization that most of the Bible is written by people who are on the underside of power. Right These are uh, really narratives of oppression of people who are being oppressed by foreign kings it's you know it's the Babylonians it's the assyrians it's the Medes it's the Persians, and then eventually uh, it becomes the Romans in Jesus day that are really the ones who are in charge in this time period, and so the people of god are are learning and trying to do life in the midst of a context where those in power are not supportive of them and their God and their and their and their customs, so according to most of the Bible uh, and a makes sense if you're one of those who's underneath these kings. These kings are out of control. They're, they're egomaniacal fools who just love to make life hard on their subjects. And the book of Daniel is not a stranger to this view. The kings we read about in Daniel, as you've seen through this entire book, don't remember that they proclaim that God's in charge because of the power he's shown. But the next chapter, they're back to believing that they're really more important and in charge than God is. And, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's not a hero in any of these stories, Belshazzar isn't, and we run into Darius here, and eventually Cyrus as well. And, and Darius's cabinet plays Darius like a fiddle, all right? I mean, he, they know exactly how to get to him. If they play to his pride, if they use flattery, they can get in and get whatever they want done. And so they, they, they tell him they want to make a law that no one can pray to anyone else except for uh, the majesty himself. They only bow down to him. And Darius takes the bait. And he puts the decree in writing. And three different times in the story, it reminds us that the king cannot go back on the decree that he's written, which seems silly, doesn't it, right? I mean, who who would set up a law that if there's a scenario where it doesn't make sense, you can reject that? But the story reminds us you can't do that in these times. Well, it's a recurring theme in the Bible. It doesn't just show up here. And I want to go back and talk about other kings who made similar decisions and how foolish those decisions were. Because I think it instructs in this story as well. You remember the story of Esther? Esther, uh, really before she shows up on the scene, there's a king named Xerxes, whose wife is Queen Vashti. And, and Xerxes throws this banquet. He's got all these people that are drinking the best of the wine of his kingdom. And in a moment of confusion, in a moment of what he desires, he calls in Queen Vashti to dance for all those who are present at this banquet. And she refuses him, right? In this, this great, uh, really faithful move against what the king desires. And you remember what Xerxes' advisors suggest in this scenario? It's it's kind of funny if you read this in context of what these guys are saying. I want to open up in in Esther chapter 1, verse 16. And I just want to show you what the advisors of the king say in this story. Then Mamukin replied uh, in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king nobles in this same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. so The king did as Mamuk proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his household using his native tongue. Great logic, right? King Xerxes, if you get rid of Vashti, then all the women of the kingdom will respect their husbands. How do you inspire respect? Create a law that every man should be the ruler of his home. Right. And later in the book of Esther, there's another command, a decree that's put out, right? It's that all the Jews will be round up, they'll be executed, they'll be killed. And what King uh, Xerxes doesn't realize is that his new queen, Esther, is actually part of the people that he's commanded would be done away with. See, the Bible has a view on kingship, and it's not all that positive. It seems to me if you want to manipulate a king into doing something he'll regret later, the pattern is to get him drunk before putting him in a situation where he would be embarrassed before uh, the others who are drunk in his kingdom that are rulers as well. If you can put him in that situation, you can get him to do anything. It works in Daniel. It works in Esther. And it works in the Gospels. Uh, turn over with me to Mark chapter 6. It's a, another ruler that's a Roman ruler this time. His name's Herod. And he's kind of crazy for all kinds of other reasons. But Mark, Mark 6, the story's told about a guy named John the Baptist. And, and see, this guy, Herod, had married his brother Philip's wife. He'd just kind of stolen her away. And, and she's happy about it because now she's on the throne along with Herod. And so, so uh, John the Baptist hears about all this happening, and he actually condemns. He speaks out against Herod himself, the king, and says, what you've done is wrong. And it's not really a good thing when you speak out against the king with that kind of truth because Herod doesn't like this and Herodias doesn't like it even more so. So Herodias has this opportunity. And how does it happen? Because, well, Herod throws a banquet and he gets everybody drunk. And she's read maybe the Bible before and knows the king's in trouble here, right? So so she decides to send her daughter, Herodias' daughter, in. And she dances before Herod. And Herod makes a foolish vow. He says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom, whatever you ask. And she says, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Sure enough, he's willing to do even that. Uh, Mark six twenty six. listen to these words. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison. Because of his oaths and his dinner guests. This story has been told before. And once again, just a few chapters later in chapter 15, we come across another story with Jesus. It's Pilate who's in the scene in this picture, right? Pilate is another leader who is supposed to be in charge, but the crowds seem more in charge of the situation than Pilate is. Jesus is on trial. And the religious leaders manipulate to get Pilate to the trial and then actually get him convicted. Pilate knows that the man's innocent. He can't find nothing to do, but he can't seem to hand him over to anyone else. Listen to this, chapter 15, verse 12. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Those words, wanting the crowd to be satisfied, to satisfy the crowds. Kings are not nearly as in charge as they seem to be. They're easily manipulated in Scripture. They're unjust, and they bind themselves to foolish laws. That's exactly what's happening in Daniel chapter 6. King Darius is before his cabinet, and he has no idea he's being played them. This man that he respects, Daniel, he's wanting to raise up in the land to greater leadership. And the rest of these leaders, they're jealous of Daniel and what he's getting to do. So they look, they begin to look to find something they can charge him with. Daniel, the man who had so distinguished himself that Darius had planned to set him over all the kingdom, is on his way to the lions. And you can tell Darius doesn't want to go through with this. He spends all day, it says it was determined to re- he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. And even as as he's leading Daniel to the lion's den, you can tell he's hoping that maybe, maybe just maybe, Daniel's God will come through in this situation. Daniel's not at the center of the story. But really, neither is the king here. He's getting played. He's just kind of a minor character in a way. The central characters in this story are the king's advisors, they're the ones who cause the story to move. They're the ones who are plotting and causing harm. They don't like Daniel, and they hire a private investigator. They do their own dirty work, and they try to find something that can be seen that they can depose Daniel and show that he's not as good of a man as he seems to be. In a way, this story is like, a, it's like an extended parable. It's like a parable in narrative form. In fact, I want to turn over to the Proverbs, if you would, with me. Proverbs chapter 6, if you read this in light of the story of Daniel, it's really interesting. How similar these stories are, and what ends up occurring to the fools in this story. This is Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 12. Listen to this proverb. A, a troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He'll be suddenly destroyed without remedy. There are six things the Lord hates seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the communities. there no better description of Daniel chapter six. These are troublemakers. They're villains. They have corrupt mouths. They plot evil with deceit in their hearts. They stir up conflict. And in the end, the Proverbs warning comes true. They're the fools who end up coming to ruin and disaster. Yes, Daniel 6 is a story about God's salvation. In many ways, Daniel's story parallels the future story of Jesus. Do you see this? It's political and religious leaders. It's more uh, In this story, it's, it seems to be more the political leaders with Daniel who plot to basically have an innocent man killed. What I found amazing as I saw this was the stone comes over the den, almost as if the stone is rolled over the tomb with Jesus. And death seems certain in the story, but what do we find on the other side? Resurrection. Daniel doesn't die in this story, but it parallels the story of Jesus in so many interesting ways. This is a story about surprising resurrection. So these are the parts of the story I don't remember when I think about Daniel in the lion's den. I think about Daniel and his action with the lions, but really it's not that big a part of this story. Daniel 6 is pretty silent about Daniel and what happens. What astounds me about Daniel in this story is the very thing that causes me to look at my own life and wonder this question. Am I really living for God as deeply, as honestly, with as much integrity as I should? And Daniel is somebody who's caused me to think about that and ask some questions this week that I want to leave with you. So this morning, I want to share three questions. I want to share three questions I've been asking myself this week in relation to the story. I want to challenge you to reflect on these questions as well. So the first question came to me as I was dwelling on Proverbs or I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. So let me read those verses again. These are astounding verses. It says there at this the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, "We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God." This is this is an amazing statement, isn't it? Here are these political opponents who are trying to find any dirt they can on Daniel. And when they come back, all they say is, "We can't find anything. We can't find any corruption. We can't find any negligence in the way that he is he's led. He wasn't corrupt, which means there aren't sins of commission, right? Sins that he." did that were wrong. There are no sins of omission. There was no negligence. There was not something he should have done that he failed to do. They couldn't find any basis for charges against Daniel. So here's the first question I've been pondering this week that I want to leave with you as you dwell maybe on this passage later this week personally, or or you're in a connecting point group and have these conversations. The first question is this, if someone were to take a deep look into your life and wanted to discredit you, what would they find? Somebody were to send a private investigator after you because they didn't like you for some reason. How easy would it be for them to find the dirt that they're looking for to discredit what the king wants to do to raise you up or whatever the scenario is? That's a challenging question. I believe these two verses are some of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture. Because all over Scripture, what would people have to do to discredit the heroes of the Bible? They don't have to do private investigation work. They just have to read the Bible, right? The Bible shows how most of these characters that God uses are imperfect people and have all kinds of flaws from David to Moses to everyone you can imagine, it seems. They all seem to have these flaws. And, and I love that Scripture just kind of lays those out. And isn't that good news for those of us that our record's not so clean to know God wants to continue to use us? He, he can still use us. But I do find it amazing. I have an extra level, an extra measure of support and appreciation for Daniel because I see that even when they did that search, they could find no corruption. It's an amazing thing. Uh, second question I've been dwelling on when it came to me when I to reconsider Daniel's response to the decree. Listen to what he says after the decree is made. This is in verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So here's question two. If if there was a What would be your response if there was a law in the land that basically decreed that it was wrong to continue your religious or spiritual practice? What's the first thing you would do after that came to you? And I love what Daniel does because he does just what he was in the habit of doing. He goes home, he walks upstairs, and he prays toward Jerusalem with his windows open. He doesn't respond with outrage. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't get a lawyer. He doesn't protest. He just goes and prays, and I love what it says, just as he had done before. And that's powerful because his freedom to worship, he realizes, is not granted by his government. He's not a follower of God because any leader protects that right. He is a follower of God regardless of the cost that comes to him personally. Because no freedom can be granted in that way. The freedom to worship is commanded by God, regardless what the laws of the land are. A couple of weeks ago, Keith preached on the passage about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there was this story about this desire to, you have to bow down to this this statue or else you'll be put into the flames of the burning furnace. And I'm thinking, if I were in that situation, I were given that ultimatum, what would my response be in that moment? And I gotta tell you, I am pretty good at justifying something It's an easier path rather than a harder path. I I do pretty good work at that. And I know what I would say to God if I were in that situation. If I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as I'm getting on my knees, I would say, God, I, I don't really mean this. And then I would justify it by saying, God, I'm a missionary as an exile to a foreign land, and if I'm dead, what good does that do to you and your kingdom? I would say, well, you know, God, you know, I don't really mean what I'm doing. And so if I cross my fingers, then can we just call this good? Because we we can't let them win in this scenario. And if I was Daniel, I know where I would go to justify an even easier path. Daniel, what does it hurt to close the windows, buddy? Really? You go home and you open the windows to Jerusalem? And I've got a book, chapter, and verse to defend that that Daniel didn't have. But let me just show you how my mind works. Maybe some of you are ahead of me. Matthew chapter 6, these are the words of Jesus, no less. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, it's right there. got to know your Bibles, people. We are so quick to justify ourselves, aren't we? So quick to find that passage that allows us to go the easier route. Just don't pray so the bad guys can see you. It's holier to pray with the windows closed in my closet. We are so good at justifying our sin. But Daniel refuses to justify any. He just goes home, he walks upstairs, he opens his windows to Jerusalem, and he prays like he's done before. And I love that detail about praying toward Jerusalem. I hadn't noticed it until I was reading it this week. I just kind of read over and thought, well, yeah, Babylon. No, Jerusalem. See, Daniel grew up in Jerusalem, right? He was an exile that had been taken from his homeland that was destroyed. Now he's in Babylon, and now he knows if he prays, he's going to be in a hole with lions. Now, if I'm getting on my knees praying, I've got some curses that I want to call down first. But second thing I'm going to do is say, God, you've got to somehow get me out of this. God, if I'm going to go in this hole, I want you to protect me. I'm praying looking at the hole if I'm standing up looking anywhere out of that place. But I love what Daniel does. That detail about Jerusalem, it's as if Daniel is praying toward a future that's beyond the reality that everyone thinks he's going toward, which is into this den of lions and that being the end of the story. He's praying toward his future. I wonder if some of you right now, I I, I would tell you, keep praying about the lion's dens in your life. But don't forget to pray over those lines, den. Don't forget to pray toward the future that God has promised. Don't get so, so stuck in this moment that you can only pray about this, forgetting that God has made promises about what he is going to do and what he is going to fulfill. And I think Daniel, as he's looking toward Jerusalem, is praying toward the future that God has promised for him. There's going to come a day where this is all going to work out in the end because in the end, Darius isn't in charge. God is. It's the last uh, question I want to leave with you. I think it's the hardest question I've been struggling with. And it it came as I was reading the end of verse 5. So let me read again in Daniel 6, verse 5. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. See, the only hope they had for getting Daniel was not anything he had done wrong. They knew it would have something to do with the law of his God. It would have something to do with his spiritual practice. And they know exactly what will get him in trouble because they've done the private investigation work. They land on prayer because of what it says in verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem three times a day. He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. That phrase is so powerful to me. It's like the opponents could depend on his spiritual practice that they knew which law to create. So here's my question. If you could stand the search that people would make into your life about finding faults, and if you could move past even the justification of not doing what God's called you to do, what spiritual practice is so regular in your life that there's no doubt they could find what it is and send you to the Lions for it? I remember walking into my dad's office as a kid, and I remember catching him reading his Bible maybe you remember something about your grandparents or your parents. You can remember just catching them in the act of spirituality, of their spiritual practice that was so regular, it's almost as if you could depend on it. When I think about my kids, I don't want to do those acts so they'll catch me, but I would like something to be so consistent and regular in my life that I might just get caught every now and again. And I guess that's my question, is if, if, a decree that was made, if somebody was looking for something to, to go against you with and they knew it had to be something with the law of your God, and let's just kind of exempt church practice for a moment on this, right? Because I know, say, well, if, if church practice, I'd keep going and they, let's go beyond that. What is the regular spiritual practice in your life that those people would create the law against that they would catch you for and you'd definitely get thrown in the lines for? Is there any spiritual practice that's regular enough and public enough that you could get caught for it and sent to the lions. For it. This is the most convicting question for me. It's, I mean, the first question is convicting, but I'm like, yeah, people can find dirt on me. I've admitted that to you all. But, but then the justification, that's a little hard. But this next one is, what's the positive thing? What is that thing in your life that is so consistent? Did your kids catch you? And if anyone was against you and wanted to create a law against them, they would catch you as well. What would the decree be that they would outlaw if they were going to try to throw you the lions? I mean, this would be this would be an easy sermon to preach about how we stand up for our rights. That's what Daniel 6 can be, right? The law of the land goes against it. We stand up and we give outrage and we, 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 so we don't get thrown to the lions. If you want to hear that sermon, there's a lot of places you can go online to hear it. But I don't think that's what this question or this story is really about. Daniel isn't going to bow down to the law of the Medes and the Persians, and he isn't going to be disrupted from his normal practice because he chooses to trust that God is more powerful than those who seem most powerful. And he gets saved. But that doesn't mean that everyone gets saved, does it? Because centuries later, centuries later in the Roman Colosseum, they're going to get be people that are thrown into a hole with lions and they're going to get killed. So there's no promise in this story that anyone who's faithful is all of a sudden going to get saved by God when it matters most. But I do learn from Daniel that Daniel 6 doesn't arm us for a culture war. Daniel 6 begs us to ask questions about whether we are more committed to God than we are to committed to preserving our own lives. So I want to leave these questions with you this week, and I want them to trouble you as much as they've troubled me. Maybe that's the best job I have as a preacher is to trouble you spiritually is. As I'm troubled. These questions have been sitting with me. Let me share them with you again. Maybe you want to write them down. Maybe you want to sit with them this week. Your groups will discuss them, uh, many of them. Someone tried to discredit you. They sent a private investigator. What's the first thing they'd find? And how do we stop hiding those things, covering them over, and putting them in the dark? How do we start to just unveil them so that they're no longer secrets that can be used against us? Now they're secrets that become ministries of how God's saved us and how He's changed us. and That's what we do with our sin, right? We, we confess our sin, we submit it to God, we find it restored, and then we walk with others who are walking through those same things. And all of a sudden, secrets... I mean, you're only as sick as your secrets, the recovery community reminds us of. What secrets right now are making you sick? Uh, number two, what would be your response following the creed that limits your religious practice? Would it be to try to prevent that decree or would it be to go right to the spiritual practice you know you always do in those moments? Would you hit your knees and pray curses against someone else or would you hit your knees and pray toward the future of what God's already promised for you? Number three, what spiritual practice is so constant in your life that would send you to the lions? What is it in your life? And if you don't have that current spiritual practice, maybe you've gotten out of rhythm, I want to challenge you this week. Get back on that schedule. These are these are means of grace for us. They're not ways that we earn God's favor, the spiritual practices in our lives. We, we open ourselves up to the grace of God, and, and through that, Daniel's a changed person. I, w- I want to share one more thing before I close this morning. Keep these three questions with you. But in this story, when you read these details, who should be the craziest person in the story? Who should be the one who is most filled with anxiety? Who, who's the, who should be the crazy person in this story? It should be Daniel, right? Daniel should be a nervous wreck, He should be questioning his own integrity and what he's going to do as a response to it. The king shouldn't have any worry about anything, and the advisors shouldn't either. Who's the crazy one in this story? Who's the one filled with anxiety and worry? Who's the one who can't sleep at night? It's the king. It's the advisors who are running around trying to create all kinds of havoc and conflict. and, And Daniel doesn't have a worry in the world. He's the sanest person in the story. And I'm wondering in your life, as you walk into a room, do you make that room more peaceful or less peaceful? Do you fill that room with more anxiety or do you, you take the anxiety out of that room? Do people feel more safe around you or do they feel less safe when you walk in? When I look at the story in Daniel 6, it, it's, it's amazing to me. I think the reason why is because Daniel knows exactly who he is, and he knows who's in charge, and he knows what his response is going to be, and he knows his spiritual practice is going to continue no matter the practice or the law that comes up against him. I want to be the same person in the room. I want to be the person that when I should be most anxious, people are looking at me going, why are you sleeping okay? It's, it's a strange detail, this part about King Darius, right? I mean, He can't sleep that night. And part of me thinks it's about guilt, but part of you, you can see in the story, he can't wait to get up the next morning and find out if he's alive. If somebody got thrown in the lion's den, I wouldn't be losing over sleep over the question of if he lives the next day, right? Maybe the guilt. Part of Darius is, I, I, he's, I think, nervous about what he's done, but he's also wondering, maybe, just maybe, this God will save him. So I want you to dwell on these three questions. I want you to think about that, about Does anxiety go up or or does it go down? And and what needs to change in your life so that you can be so certain of who you are, you know exactly how to respond? That's the the lesson of Daniel 6 for me. Where's my identity set? And how can I live in such a way that no external change in the world changes the response I have and the practices that I consider most important? Let's pray as we close this morning. God, I I thank you so much for this story. I thank you for the struggle I've had this week because I've struggled through those questions about what would people find in my life? And and how do I justify an easier path? And, and and God, what practices in my life are obvious to those who are closest to me or even my enemies that want to discredit me? So God, we, we repent of those sins that the investigator would find in our lives. God, we want to throw those back to you. We want to find ways to confess those sins to one another so that we can find healing. We want to step out of denial in those ways. And God this morning for the ways that we are justifying God behaviors that are not consistent with your flourishing in the world the way you've designed the world to be may we step out of those justifications and may we find uh, the way that is life that's found in your son Jesus and God for those practices that we've let kind of be brushed aside through the worries and concerns of this world we've got to realize that it's not that we're too busy to pray we're too busy not to pray God and that needs to be such a rhythm that People can see that it, we're different than the world around us. So, God, we struggle with these questions. We ask that you'd help us work these out in community and, and with one another this week. And we, just, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you continue to push us forward and that you are the God who saves us from the pit. We pray this in the name of Jesus this morning. Amen.